And welcome to the Aspire Hire podcast, your host, Dave Glazer. We provide personal trainers with simple solutions to build a business, master online training, and eventually open their own studio. Our goal is to share business systems, marketing tools, customer service strategies to help you build a business quickly so that it can be sustained long term. Hey guys, welcome back to the Aspire Hire podcast. I'm honored to be joined from Australia, Mr. Kane Patterson. How are you? I'm good, Dave. And you? I'm fantastic, man. Uh, so you host the, the Skinny to Strong Fit podcast. Um, yep. And your story is truly unique and inspiring to me. So uh, let's get to know you a little bit. Um, go ahead, tell us your background story really quick and uh, that way our audience can get to, to get to know you better. Uh, do you want sort of a gloss over of, of everything? Cause we could be here for a while. <laughs> I've got the time. If you've got the time. <laughs> uh, so the, the, the best and easiest way to explain my, uh, my childhood and my upbringing and stuff like that is it's something that you would usually see in a book or in a movie. Uh, a lot of people don't believe me when I tell them, um, when I was first born, I was born a heroin baby. So pretty much my mum was taking a lot of substances, mainly heroin through her, her pregnancy. And when I was born, I went through withdrawals from heroin. Uh, my brother was the same. Uh, all through my childhood from about the age of one and a half, we were in and out of foster care. Uh, is it, are you in the, you're in the States, yep? We are, yeah. Is it called foster care over there? Yeah, I would say that that's yep. uh, that's pretty similar to what we what we have as a system here. My my nephew was adopted from foster care system here. Yep, cool. That's good to hear that he was adopted. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. His own his own challenges and struggles, but but now that he's in cross country and lacrosse uh, and swimming, uh, he's kind of settled down a little bit. Awesome. That's good. <laughs> um, yeah. So you you and your brother were in foster care. Uh, yeah, so all, all my siblings have been in foster care. Uh, unfortunately, because of my mum's own uh, addiction and her own problems that she goes through, she couldn't look after us and we got taken off her quite a lot. So we would either go into um, some sort of short-term placement or maybe a bit longer placement. So short-term placement here is anywhere from a couple of days to weeks or months whereas long-term placement would be a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, and then she would either uh, overdose when we went back with her or she would assault someone or commit a crime or whatever she uh, did because she had her own problems going on. Uh, and then we would get taken off her again and put into a new home, new school, new friends. Um, and yeah, it wasn't... At the time, it was just life that's what it was I didn't really understand what was going on uh, and it wasn't until later in life where I sort of became a bit older and realized what was going on and what was happening and it started to affect me in ways mm -hmm. yeah so you went through your own experience uh, at what time did your drug use or alcohol use uh, begin in your life uh, so I started drinking and uh, let's call it experimenting with drugs, nothing too hard. It was only marijuana. Every now and again, I'd have 
you know, a token on a joint or whatever it was, uh, or a few beers here and there, but nothing too serious. Uh, around about the age of 15, 16, I got my first taste of hard drugs. Uh, my mum gave me some speed. I was just standing in the kitchen talking with some friends and yeah, she just came up and was like, hey, here you go, try this. And I was, I sort of, at the time I was like, yeah, okay, cool, let's let's go. But looking back on it, I was like, the, the thought wasn't really in my head whether to have uh, hard drugs or not. But now that it was put in front of me by someone mm -hmm. that, you know, is meant to love me and care for me and stuff like that, the thought was put in my head, it was put in front of me and, and I took it. And yeah, quickly, my, I started to really like it uh, mm -hmm. and it took a hold of me. So yeah. Yeah. That sounds a lot like uh, some generational addiction patterns um, mm -hmm. being uh, basically predisposing you to, to your first taste of it becoming kind of like uh, embedded or in, enthralled in your life. Sound about mm -hmm. right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm a jujitsu athlete and I've been watching a lot of the kingdom. It's on Netflix, you know, we're still, we're still sheltering in place here in Denver, but uh, yeah. you know, it's a little looser as well. And I wouldn't call it lockdown. Just shelter in place is recommended. Um, okay. you know, I get to the park every day. I, I have been, um, seeing some friends like my small group from church and there's, <clears throat> 10 of us that meet up every other week, you know, small things like that, hosting my birthday party. But the kingdom is a hell of an example for people to watch on like what codependency and drug use uh, from generation to generation looks like. So okay. not sure if you've seen it or not. Well, I haven't, but I will definitely give it a look. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's an excellent portrayal and into the MMA world, but also into what happens when mom was a drug user and then dad got custody and then dad is an alcoholic and then the boys oh, no. become a product of their environment. So yeah. back to you though, Kane. Um, so at 15 or 16, your mom gives you your first bit of speed and then, and then what? Uh, it started out as fun uh, and it was something that I enjoyed doing. And um, it was sort of something I did in a social environment. Um, I was like any teenager at that age experimenting with drugs. I thought I could control it. I thought I was in control. I knew, you know, <laughs> I was telling everyone I could stop whenever I wanted, but I wasn't. Mm -hmm. It was it was taking a hold of me very fast. Uh, and it got to the stage where me and my mum would have a lot of arguments because we were both dealing drugs uh, and either I wouldn't give her some or, you know, the the living environment wasn't very good um i think there was there was a little bit of uh resentment and hate coming from me because i'd i was at a stage in foster care where i was old enough to make my own decisions whether i go back with her or not and i chose one more time to sort of trust her and move back in with her because uh, it looked like looked like things had changed uh -huh. <laughs> Uh, but unfortunately it hadn't, it was mm -hmm. just a, a, a front and, um, yeah, I think there was a little bit of like, uh, I'd been duped, I'd fallen for it again. And, uh, 
unfortunately this time it had a bigger repercussion than it usually does. <laughs> a lot bigger. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really hard, man. Uh, so were you playing sports or anything like that in high school or were you just um, really trying to make it through life at that time? Uh, high school was very hard for me. Uh, all school was very hard for me. Um, when you go to a school for a couple of weeks or a couple of months and then you've got to change location and then school, make new friends, knowing very well that you could only be there for a couple of weeks and then do the whole thing again was sort of, yeah, it was hard. It was difficult mm -hmm. and challenging. Um, but through high school, I got bullied heaps by people that would find out that I was in foster care and I was a ward of the state and they would like kids are assholes when they find out stuff yeah. like that. They, they just are relentless. Um, yeah, got bullied a lot. Didn't really um, apply myself at school because the way the teachers were teaching, I don't learn that way. I'm more of a hands-on person get me to get me to read something and it's like gone but, sure. but get me to do something with my hands and like actually like watch a video or something like that and I can pick it up easy as um so I I wagged most of high school uh and went and played golf uh I got really good at golf to a stage where uh, I was starting to play in amateur tournaments uh like amateur professional tournament tournaments um, but unfortunately I made that bad decision to move back in with my mom and it all, yeah, I kick myself every day for that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> hindsight is twenty twenty. Was there a person who had influence in you getting into golf? Were they, were they uh, a caregiver or a person from school? So all, all through my childhood, there was two figures in my life that were like, stable they weren't they were always there no matter where we went they were there as well and that was my nan and pop or grand, grandma and grandpa mm -hmm. um and yeah all through childhood they they were the solid uh, i still look at my nan and my pop as my mum and dad as like my father and mother figure because they taught me a lot they always looked after us they always cared for us um there was never any um, there was never any doubt that they would be there if stuff went wrong. Whereas for my mom, it was like, <laughs> there's a 95% chance if shit hits the fan, she's not going to be here. So. Sure. sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Back, but, um, back to that. Yeah. Back to that hate and resentment. Now that you're um, talking about your mom again, uh, was it hate and resentment that was out of control for you or did you feel like, I don't know where this is coming from. I can't explain why I don't like my mom so much. Um, I, I knew where it was coming from because of what had happened for, through our childhood and everything that had uh, impacted my life even before I started taking drugs. So they, they'd been a big part and a, a massive role of what had happened to me previously in life, but I hadn't actually taken them yet. Uh, and there was that hate and resentment to her then. And then as I went through my addiction, I blamed her a lot for the the events that started happening. 
Uh, it wasn't until later in life that I realized, you know, yes, she influenced my decisions, but it was then me who, who, who let it get that bad or, mm-hmm. or yeah. Yeah. It was because of what you were being taught that was okay and acceptable in your house. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Super hard. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that part of the story. Yeah. And how long would you say that you battled the addiction? Uh, were you always living at home with mom or did you eventually leave your, your childhood home? Um, I wouldn't say we had a childhood home. There was lots of different childhood homes. (laughs) Um, so when I moved back in with her, uh, and after, uh, she introduced me to drugs, things got out of control in the house quite a lot. Uh, there was a lot of different people coming into the house to deal drugs, take drugs, do everything like that. And um, it got to a stage where me and my mum would argue a lot. Um, we would end up in fights. One of us would end up in a hospital. Uh, and then it all exploded and we ended up in this massive fight because I wouldn't give her any drugs. And she ended up chasing me down the street with a meat cleaver. Uh, and like, I don't think I've ever ran so fast in my life. <laughs> um, but that's just who she is. She's that kind of person. She's not um, someone who does things by halves. And um, yeah, that, that was my sort of first experience uh, as a teenager being homeless, uh, sleeping on the streets at that stage. Uh, A couple of friends would let me stay on their couch and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it was kind of, it was a bit scary at first because it was it was very uncertain of what was going to happen or where I was going to be. You know, was was I going to be sleeping at a park tonight or was I going to have a couch to crash on? Or yeah, a bit scary. <laughs> yeah, I can't even imagine. I I haven't been there before, but uh, your unique story and sharing it with our audience is one of the reasons that we brought you here today. So thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, how long did that go on for um, before you found fitness and nutrition as like uh, as a transformation in your life? Uh, so I was, there were stages through my addiction where I was really bad. And then there were stages where I wasn't as bad and I was trying to quit. Uh, through the whole 10, 11 years where I was an addict, this was sort of like a, like a roller coaster of, um, I'd get really bad and then I'd be like, Oh my God, I want to, I want to get better. I want to try and quit. I want to try and do the right thing, you know, become a normal member of society. And then something would happen or something would go wrong. And I would just go back down into the rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were stages of homelessness all through that period where I was either finding somewhere to sleep that was out of the elements or sleeping on a mate's couch or, you know, a family member would let me stay with them for a couple of weeks or something like that. Um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of dark times through then. And I sort of, mm-hmm. I, I, I laugh about it now, but it's more of a awkward laugh. Like I don't know how to really react to it or yeah. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but yeah. No, that that's totally understandable. I'd be, I'd be the same way. Yeah. Cool. That mm-hmm. makes me feel better knowing that. <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you try to find um, any type of job or employment uh, during that 10 or 11 years? Uh, Jobs were very hard to hold down. Uh, 
it was either I, I was on something and wasn't going to work or I was coming down off something and like was feeling like crap. So I didn't go to work. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there was towards the end of my addiction, there was uh, someone who gave me a job plastering uh, a mate, a, now a very good mate of mine. I was best man at his wedding. Um, he gave me a job. Uh, I didn't turn up on Mondays for I think about two years and he still kept me on. Okay. Like he knew, he, which is pretty good of him. Like it's excellent. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. And he knew like I was straight up with him. I'm like, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm trying to do. There's going to be days where I just don't turn up because I'm either off my head or I'm not feeling too good or, and um yeah, he kept me on for two years, even though every every Monday it was pretty much guaranteed I wasn't going to turn up. So, yeah. Well, what are what are some ideas of why he would choose to uh, keep believing in you? I, I I don't know. I I like. I don't know why he would. There was obviously something there, but. Your guess is as good as mine, and why he kept me on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, what I, was the? Yeah, go ahead. I probably wouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> sure, that makes sense. I think a lot, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> what was the What was the turning point in your personal life or professional life that that really helped you kick the kick the addiction? Um. So there was a, there was a lot of things leading up to my decision to to get better. Uh, I couldn't hold down a job, you know, I was eating uh, every third day or something like that. So I wasn't very well nourished. I was extremely skinny when I first start, uh, tried to quit. And then I was homeless. I was living on mates couches or on the streets. Uh, there was just all these things building up, but the one pivotal moment that sort of my, my snap point was that, I was out at a club and I hadn't met one of my friends, my very good friends for um, a couple of weeks or months or something like that. I hadn't seen him for a while and we ran into each other at this club and I was extremely drunk and high. Uh, can't remember anything from the three or four days that I was partying uh, except for this one moment in this club with music blaring. It was very loud, uh, but I can remember what he said clear as a bell and he turned around and like, I was like, Hey, Hey, Kenna, how you going, man? Nice to see you. I haven't seen you for a while. And he just turned around and he's like, I don't want to hang out with you anymore. You're getting too bad and you're scaring me. And sort of at, at the time I was like, Oh yeah, whatever. And blew it mm -hmm. off and mm -hmm. didn't really care. But then when I came to, it, it was the only thing that I can remember. And uh, I've spoken to a lot of people about this and tried to get, an explanation on why I can only remember that moment. And a few people are like, well, maybe it was your subconscious just going, you, you have to remember this moment. It's very important. Like it's, it's going to determine where, where you go from here. And because mm -hmm. um, when I grew up, I never really had family around me. Like even my brothers and sisters, we got split up in foster care. Um, so friends that I made sort of become like my family really close to me. 
And for one of my my best friends to turn around and say that, it's sort of, yeah, just it it started mm-hmm. the ball rolling. And it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't like when I tried to quit in the past and it was this was like okay, I I have to do this. It's not a matter of I want to or I need to. It's I, I have to. Yeah, I can totally understand that. It sounds as if your friend did you the biggest favor of your life by maybe showing you for the first time in your life what a boundary was, what a healthy boundary was. Mm-hmm. The the weird thing is, he can't even remember it. And I'm like, man, I, I remember it clear as day. <laughs> and I, I, talk, I talk to him about it all the time. And he's like, I can't remember it, man. I'm like, why not? Come on. So you guys have spent some time repairing the relationship and, and you communicate now? Uh, yeah, now we do. Uh, we didn't speak for, God, for three and a half, four years. I think it was around that time. Uh, and once I finally got off everything and I stopped drinking as well, uh, I went and did my personal training course and he came and did it with me. So we did it together, oh, wow. which, cool. was, All right. which was very cool. Yeah. So yeah, walk me through, walk me through, uh, eventually quitting and taking, taking back ownership of your life and then deciding how you wanted to pursue personal training as a career. Cool. Uh, so my recovery took me ages, took me about three and a half years to finally get off everything. Uh, I didn't go to any rehab centers or anything like that. Uh, that's not to say there's heaps in Australia that you can go to, but I've always been that kind of person through my childhood. If something goes wrong, I sort of fix it myself. Uh, I've learned to work my way through things. Um, so at the start of my uh, recovery, I started trying to do everything at once. Like I tried mm-hmm. to quit everything at once and it would always just blow up in my face. It's like uh, someone going from eating a lot of crap food to changing their diet in one day and trying to sustain it. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Human um, psychology doesn't work very well. Not that way. No, cold cold turkey not. is cold. <laughs> turkey is tough. You know <laughs> yeah. what well, I tried. Uh, I tried doing that for about just over six months and I kept like, it kept blowing up in my face and I would go even harder on the drugs um, when I, when I did fall off it. Um, so after I realized that this wasn't working for me and that's not going to get me to where I want to be, I went through a process of just reducing the amount of drugs that I would have or not having them on the weekend or not having them this day or, you know, um, not having a certain drug. It was just trying to reduce the amount that I had. Um, at the start, it was kind of hard, but about a year and a half away from finally quitting, I started going to the gym and that made things heaps easier um i had gone to the gym with friends before uh going with my brother this time um and it never really grabbed me it was sort of like just stuffing around doing the bro workouts you know (laughs) yeah just sort of trying to throw as much weight around as you can (laughs) six reps and then you take four minutes of break and (laughs) yeah pretty much (laughs) um but when i started going with my brother um, it still took a couple of weeks for it to like uh, really get a hold of me and like take me, but I was ex- extremely weak when I first started. Like 
ridiculously weak. This skinny little twig trying to lift weights was, and not to mention the other guys in the gym were intimidating because they were all uh-huh. you know, big and strong. And I was like this, this little six-year-old looking guy walking. <laughs> yeah. And most and, um, likely feeling some ridicule and some eyes on you and some, some oh, disbelief, yeah, def- lack definitely. of support. Yeah. 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 Uh, thankfully my brother dragged me probably kicking and screaming at that stage, uh, to the gym. As soon as, uh, as soon as I started eating what I thought was healthy food, healthy food back then and started eating a little bit more, I started feeling stronger in the gym. Things started clicking and then that's when it took a hold of me and I, I started going to the gym heaps like every day mm-hmm. multiple mm-hmm. times a day it became uh, my my new addiction and it was slowly becoming more important than going out and getting high and everything and um it was still giving me the high that i was chasing but it was just a a different high mm-hmm. yeah yeah like a replacement behavior we were we were replacing a negative with a positive but yep. still but still it becomes like a sanctuary and a safe place and addictive in a good way. Like we're not necessarily going to negate somebody who goes to the gym two a days, you know, because that, that fits a certain type of athlete. So we're not knocking a two a day or a three a day, especially if it helps us uh, kind of feedback like, okay, well I get one win today. I get another win tomorrow and a win the next day. And you mentioned in there that, the nutrition was like a key difference maker for you. Definitely. Definitely. It um, was amazing. Once, once I started eating, as I said, I thought it was healthy nutrition back then. Uh, once I started actually eating food and then slowly increased the amount of food I was eating, I started performing better in the gym and I could work out harder, which in turn made me hungrier. And it happened quite quickly that I went from, eating, you know, one or two meals a day to eating six to eight meals a day. And it, it was over the space of about probably about a year that I, I really increased the size that I was eating and then increased the amount of workouts I was doing and increased everything there. Started feeling good, except for Dom's. They killed me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> they were intense. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Delayed yeah. onset. That's a real thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's, still, it's really tough to prevent as well. I still suffer from it now, like big mm-hmm. time. Yeah. I walk mm-hmm. around like a cripple sometimes. <laughs> sure. Jiu-Jitsu does that to me. Now that we're back into the gym three days a week, uh, our Jiu-Jitsu school, thankfully, yeah. um, has been doing a good job of keeping everybody safe. Um, I'm not currently working out at a gym location. Um, I have dumbbells here at the house. And then my my training partner and I, we we choose to go to the the apartment gym with a, yep. one cable machine, one rower and a bench. So uh, I've got some kettlebells coming on Wednesday to add into the repertoire. Awesome. Yeah. That'll, be good. That'll, that'll open things right up for you. That's right. <laughs> a bunch of functional movement there and a lot of mobility that can be done with, with kettlebells versus dumbbells and cable machines. So, yeah. Uh, so you started working out consistently and what was the time frame of, your workout regimen pairing with the desire to become a personal trainer? Uh, So I worked out for about uh, a year and a half still as an active drug addict. 
uh, and drinking through that stage as well, because as I reduced the amount of drugs I was taking, I increased the amount I was drinking uh, because alcohol was never really my, my vice. It was like something I did as a social thing or when, whenever mm-hmm. I was high, but mm-hmm. as I reduced the amount of drugs I was taking, I started getting a, a lot of shakes sure. and I had really bad um, dreams at night, like really vivid uh, dreams. And that was something that sort of helped me cope with those, those things. Um, trying to be a plasterer, and like trail straight lines when you've got shakes yeah, going sure. on is, is kind of hard. Yeah. Uh, wasn't, wasn't a, f- uh, there was a few very wonky lines and my boss was like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> but he, yeah. I bet he saw some improvement over that time frame too, of like uh, showing up more frequently, owning more stuff at work. And yep. when I, you I talk about up, <laughs> I started turning up on Mondays. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you're a totally different person to him. Yeah. Yeah. No, I see why he stuck with you for so long. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to the shakes because when I first started building my business nine years ago, um, I had an overlap of bartending at night where we were encouraged to taste beer and try beer and drink on shift and working until two or three in the morning and then ha- encouraged to have drinks after work as well as a team. Yeah. And I would have 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. clients the next day. And <sighs> I'd get maybe an hour and a half, two hours worth of sleep and I'd wake up with uh, the shakes. And what I couldn't, what I couldn't connect the dots of just out of denial back then is that like, it wasn't the volume of alcohol that I was drinking because it wasn't an excessive amount. Um, I still had a five minute drive home or whatever, but what it was is just the alcohol period for me. And the lifestyle choices that I had at that time of, okay, why are you working till 2 a.m. and then trying to make it to a 5 or a 6 a.m. session the next day? Yeah. Like you're killing no. yourself, Dave, you know? The, the lack of sleep as well would, would run havoc. Mm. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and still but, trying to put workouts in there too. I, I couldn't uh, work out until 2 or 3 in the afternoon because, <laughs> did you, because I'd have a full client load in, in the mornings. So when I, when I first started PTing, I was working uh, 12 hour days and I was catching a train into work for about an hour and then a train home. Uh, and I would I'd probably get about six and a half hours sleep a night, still quite a lot, but I was burning the candle at both ends. And mm-hmm. it, it got to a stage where I started increasing my training to try and compensate, you know, cause I wasn't making the best food choices because my head just wasn't in it. And then mm-hmm. I got to a stage where, uh, once again, through my life, I'd hate, I hated myself and what I'd created and everything in my, my business. I started to hate um, something that had been a pivotal uh, tool in my recovery. Did you ever get to that stage? Oh, absolutely. There were, yeah. there were probably the second summer that I was in business Um, I started to have that reflection back on me of like, you're not doing enough. You're not good enough. You're not going to measure up in this industry. It was probably uh, 12 or 13 full months into my business. And, and I was pretty close with a couple of my clients. They believed in me from the start. And I went to them and I I said, you know, like um, I don't feel good about 
what's going on in my body. And I don't like the way that my body looks. And I got feedback at that time from a very influential client of mine. And she said, Dave, you got to, you got to be conscious of what you say around your clients, because if you're dealing with it and you have 8% body fat, imagine what we're going through right now at, I work mostly with female clients. Imagine what we're going through at 20% body fat, you know? Mm -hmm. So I started to connect the dots that second summer that I was in business. And I started to understand that my anxiety and depression was negatively impacting my business. And the alcohol that I was just describing, that lifestyle and the pattern of working nights and then mornings was also negatively impacting my self-image, my mm -hmm. belief and confidence in my business. And so that from that summer on, I started to be more transparent about how exercise and nutrition was for me, how I battle anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. Was it like, so when you, when you started being open about it, was it a big weight lifted? Oh, it totally lifted off of my shoulders. Um, I think I, I think I was seeing somebody that spring and then we broke up over summer and then we got back together in fall. And I felt that that transparency and that vulnerability that I led with amongst my clientele and amongst my friends who, who read this really uh, influential blog post that I wrote um, about the top 10 reasons why exercise and nutrition um, positively impacts mental health. I wrote this blog post and I started sharing it and it just made a huge change in my perspective, but also my client's attraction and gravitation to me and to what my purpose was in this world. That's cool. Very cool. I, um, yeah, it I hasn't a, been easy, but <laughs> definitely not. I, um, when I was working with my trainer and it, we first talked about my past and I opened up to him, he, uh, he said to me, you've got to write about this and put it on Facebook and put it out there for people to read. And I was like, nah, no way, not doing that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I fought him for a while. And then eventually I, I wrote about it and I put my transformation photos with it. And, uh, it blew up. I had to turn my Facebook off for like three days. Mm -hmm. And, but once I sort of did it and I was writing about it, the, how much it sort of freed me from the control that, that, that life and my mum also had over me was amazing. It was mm -hmm. like, it was like, oh, yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we, I definitely was surprised by the feedback that I got, the positive feedback of my clients and then other people on Facebook just saying, Dave, you're not alone. You know, I feel the exact same way because of this and this and this. And one of my favorite authors, Brene Brown, says that shame cannot live in the presence of empathy. And empathy for me is something that it's a learned skill. Like we don't always necessarily innately know how to be empathetic to other people. Yep. But that was the first time in my life that I felt others' empathy for my situation because I was pretty tight-lipped about it up until that point. Cool. That's very cool. I, uh, yeah, I struggle to be empathetic a lot. I don't, know, I don't know why, but it just, yeah. Sure. It's, it's I, a struggle I, for me. <laughs> I totally understand that. We were, yeah. we were not necessarily... Um, given that emotion as children, we were, we grew up in a disciplinarian household, a very mm -hmm. fair uh, household and a very uh, on the surface loving, 
you know, but that depth and that empathy, it just wasn't there. So learning that communication as a business owner and as a personal trainer later on in my life of like, oh, I totally understand you're not reaching your goals as quickly as you want to. I totally understand that. I'm here to listen. Mm -hmm. And that's the one hard thing that for personal trainers that we want to just jump in there and boots on the ground and fix, right? We want to fix everything for our client. And there are times as personal trainers, we just need to have empathy for them and just listen. Yeah, definitely. So how'd you get your personal training business started? How did you get it up and off the ground? Uh, So I started in a commercial gym. Once I finished my uh, PT certification, I found it really hard to find a gym that would let me work in there. Um, I'm very honest about my past, my history, my addiction and everything. And um, when I would talk to a gym manager or owner or something, I would say, listen, this is, this is who I am. This is what I've been through. This is what I've done. And most of them would be like, uh, nah, sorry, mate. <laughs> go, go try someone else. And uh, mm-hmm. once again, I got a pretty good break from a, a very good friend of mine now, uh, Jose, let me in. He's like, yeah, yeah, come, let's have a chat. Let's have a talk and um, see, see what we can do. And I went in and <laughs> it's kind of a funny story. Our interview we had the first time I ever met him, uh, I walked in, I'm like, Oh, Hey, how you going, Jose? Good to meet you. Um, how long is this going to be? I've got to go to the police officer, uh, police office down the road and sort some things out. And he's like, that's not how you start an interview. <laughs> I'm like, uh, just being honest, like I, it's important that I get this stuff sorted out or else uh-huh. yeah, worse sure. things are going to happen. So, but um, yeah, he gave me a break, uh, took me in under his wing. I sort of became like his mentoree. Uh, and yeah, everything from there started trying to expand my skill base, started working on my own body. I thought I was, but it ended up that I just burnt the candle at both ends and ended Mm -hmm. up getting to that stage where I hated myself again. Sure. Um, But yeah, going into a gym as a new PT, I thought, I don't know what it's like in America, uh, but I thought there would be a lot more uh, like support and stuff here for, for fresh PTs that are first starting. They, you, you go through your buildup phase where, they give you reduced rent and stuff like that. Uh, and then they give you some sort of upskilling, like a, a boxing course or a kettlebell course or something like that. But they don't really, they don't delve into the, uh, like how to talk to people, how to, how to sell to people, how to um, uh, take people through a proper transformation and stuff like that. Like, cause I'd, I'd been through my own transformation but I'd never taken anyone else through one. So right. the, the training side and stuff like that, I was competent at, but talking to people and saying, hey, uh, come and work with me. Like here, here's a direct debit form, give me money. That's, uh-huh. that's the side I was like, nah. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure, I can totally relate to that because um, I went to four-year university here in Denver for exercise science. I Mm -hmm. interned at the University of Denver in their strength and conditioning department, and I wanted to work with athletes. And 
I took nine months off after graduation and after that internship before I even had a personal training client because I wasn't sure that I wanted to do it full time, you know, and I also didn't want to be a hobbyist either. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to just do it two or three hours a day. If I do something, I'm all in or I'm all out. Yeah. And so my mom was my first client and we just started meeting up at a commercial gym and then once a week and then twice a week. And then we got busted and <laughs> I was, I was asked to go find uh, cause that's a little frowned upon. Um, I was asked to go find something just, a little bit, a little, more, bit. <laughs> a little bit more private. And I, I stumbled upon a, like a 6,000 square foot functional fitness gym here in Denver. And I walked in and I thought the same thing, you know, I would, walk in, start paying my monthly rent. It was minimal, 500 bucks a month uh, for part-time work. And I thought I would have support, you know, from, yeah. from the owner and the other team. And uh, what I found is a whole lot of scarcity mindset of like, I can't share my secrets with you because then you're going to oh. steal my clients. Well, what I experienced in, in my internship was not a great experience. I was ignored and I was basically just observing for 475 hours. So I knew how not to treat people. Mm -hmm. And what I've done since then is yes, build my business. But when personal trainers who came into this gym studio, massive building with turf and uh, barbells and kettlebells and dumbbells, we had everything except for, you know, the bells and whistles. When new trainers came into that gym, I didn't want them to experience what I experienced. So I welcomed them into um, my world okay, Dave, mm -hmm. we see you here 10 hours a day. How did you do it? Well, if you ask me that question, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you as much information as you can handle. And I started by sharing spreadsheets like, hey, here's how I do an intake. I would actually demonstrate with them for an hour. Hey, here's how I do my consultation. Does that seem yeah. like something that you can duplicate? And that helped me decide that my purpose in this life was to teach other personal trainers to do what I do, but better because they were going to have that passion for it for yeah. longer. And I eventually built like an online mentorship course with videos and spreadsheets and systems that goes eight weeks in a row. And now I'm focusing exclusively on training interns from my alma mater, Metro State, to do that in my business. So we've had five interns from Metro State now, and they've all gone through this mentorship program. And, uh, some have gone on to run their own multiple six-figure real estate businesses and others have gone on to uh, have a hobbyist type of a part-time personal training job. But if I held back on any of that information, my purpose in life would not be reached, mm -hmm. which is to impact more lives through fitness and nutrition for their mental health. Yeah. The, uh, the PT industry, especially in like um, commercial gyms, is very cutthroat. Every, everyone, uh, it must be just a... A global thing because here in Australia like it's it's very rare to find someone that is working in a in a commercial gym as a PT that will help another personal trainer they're very like mine you know mine yeah mine, mine. yeah <laughs> um, I I wasn't I wasn't like that uh, mm -hmm. like if if there was a a client like I'm, I'm not a runner I'm not a fitness person I'm a I'm a lifter and an eater of massive food. <laughs> um, so if, if someone comes to me and they're like, listen, I want to be a marathon runner. I'm like, I, I can't help you. I'm not, I'm not the trainer for you, but this person, that's what he does. So 
you know, go see him. Uh, or we like when you do um, like meetups with the gym manager and you're trying to do like upskilling stuff, people don't, I find they don't contribute. They try and keep everything to themselves. Whereas I was like, oh, this, this is what I'm doing. Hey, you know, if you know a better way, let me know. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to, trying to upskill. Uh, having a mentor though, through this whole time has been, I don't think I will ever not have a mentor as a, as a PT. Like it's having someone there looking from the outside in that doesn't have that strong emotional connection to their things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is critical. Like sometimes I don't agree with what he says, but I trust him and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm paying you a lot of money and, and we have a good relationship. I know that you're not going to tell me to do something that's not going to be beneficial for me. So sometimes I'm like, all right, I'll trust you and we'll do it. I don't feel confident about it, but let's go. <laughs> yeah. 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 I totally get that for sure. Um, that you said his name was Jose, right? Your mentor. Uh, that, that was my first mentor. Uh, and he took me through, Oh God, I think it was about two and a half, three years of like my, my initial start to being a personal trainer. And then I went a little while without having a mentor. And then I started having another mentor that is a more of a niche mentor for the program that I do. Um, and yeah, I've had, I can't, can't even tell you how long I've had Matt as a mentor. I sort of just, he's like, Oh, you want to do another year? I'm like, yep, let's do it. Don't even ask me. Just, just sign me up. I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, yeah. it sounds like he's no, he knows what he's doing and, and I, I understand that you want to take your business mostly online for the mm-hmm. future so yep. that you can, so that you can be a family person or a family oriented person. Yep, definitely. That's, uh, that's one of the long-term goals. Um, we almost, almost got there, but I'm still learning a lot of how to uh, market myself online because it's a lot mm-hmm. different to being in a gym and just looking the part. Uh, mm-hmm online you've got to sort of you've got to know how to talk to people you've got to know how to send your message um so for someone who couldn't really read or write a couple of years ago it's kind of hard for me to put my message out there because i can't get it from here onto paper (laughs) yeah yeah I'm i'm the same exact way and i have a hard time communicating what's in my head and what's in my heart about why Mm -hmm what I'm most passionate about and what I'm most knowledgeable about. I have a hard time communicating that on social media as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did find that over the course of my career, my Facebook personal page has always been my best source and best pipeline. Yep. We've, we've got a page and a group and we get very little engagement, but on yeah. my personal Facebook, like yeah. everything happens. So mm-hmm. Yeah, I always encourage people to to stay focused on the low-hanging fruit. Where is your time best spent? And it's a Stephen Covey principle, the 80-20 rule. Spend Mm -hmm. 80% of your time on the 20% that's producing and then spend 20% of your time on the rest of the 80%, like office work and referral marketing Mm -hmm. and paid advertising and things like that. But the Facebook algorithm is meant to keep your Facebook business page small. 
because yeah. otherwise you're not going to pay for their ads. So um, <laughs> that's a big piece of the puzzle of the man holding me down that I'm anti-establishment, anti-conformist. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, you're not going to help me build my Facebook business page. I won't spend any time there. Yeah. We, we don't do a hell of a lot there, just live feeds and that's, that's mm. about it. Mm-hmm. I, I will direct feed from maybe systems that are running in the background, like Hootsuite, you know, okay, well, I want it. Give me just one second. I don't know why it blocks. Yeah. All right. Sorry. That's okay. um, like I know that I want to post this image and this message on Instagram where we get a lot of traffic and a lot of interaction, but while I'm posting that on Instagram in Hootsuite, I can also post that same post on Facebook. So it's not costing me any extra time to be engaging in that realm. And mm -hmm. that's the only interaction that I would have um, outside of my closed group on a Facebook business page. Um, they, yeah. just, they just try to control way too much and it doesn't feel authentic to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so specifically, you were just bringing up your niche and Matt has been helping you dial in your niche specificity and growing your business there. Uh, describe your ideal client for me. Uh, like when I first started out, like most personal trainers, I tried to go with weight loss, uh, health and stuff like that. But being someone who has never struggled with weight, uh, I've, I've struggled with the other end of weight, not having enough of it. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a niche that I could sort of relate to on a personal level. I couldn't, I couldn't understand some of the stuff they were going through, even though there's now that I've sort of educated myself a lot more, there's, there's very uh, close similarities between both ends of the spectrum. Um, and, yeah, so over the over the couple of years, me and my mentor and my girlfriend, uh, we've been sort of honing our niche down to people gaining healthy weight and doing it in a way that uh, doesn't require supplements or heaps of like you know pills and powders and stuff right. like that. Uh, using effective training, mo mostly weightlifting uh, because it gives the right stimulus, and then using the nutrition to facilitate the growth. Yeah, I can respect that. And we've always come at an approach, whether it's weight loss, weight maintenance, or weight gain as a fuel for performance kind of a philosophy yep, uh, where quality over quantity. But I mean, if you're trying to add weight, you're definitely going to want to get some quality quantity in your system. <laughs> definitely. It's, it's, a, it's a hard, it's, it's exactly the same as the weight loss uh, industry. There's a hell of a lot of noise in it. So for someone like me to come in there and say, hey, you know, you don't need to take these supplements, you don't need this, focus on eating quality food, which will increase your appetite, and then you can eat more food over time, mm -hmm. it sort of gets thrown to the back. Uh, fortunately, I've, I've gained 30 kilos of lean mass, so I can sort of put my photo up there and go, hey, sure. <laughs> I'm not bullshitting you. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely post your before and afters um, along with this message because I think that that illustration, that proof right there between who you were and who you are now, not just physically, but 
mentally and emotionally and financially speaking as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, there is no quick fix. There is no magic pill. It takes no. years worth of work, whether you want to get to your fitness goals or your professional goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. Incredible how, um, how long it's taken me to get somewhere and then the goalpost move and I've got to try and chase that goal. And like through the whole time, there's been ups and downs. There's been, I've gone backwards and then had to rebuild. It's never, it's never a straight line. Like people think it is. Unfortunately, I wish it was, but right. Yeah. In an ideal world, we would climb a steady incline to financial and quality of life growth and goals and things like that. But the line of entrepreneurship is more of a squiggly winding route and we find roadblocks and rocks that stand in our way. And then all of a sudden we move that rock and we get to a false peak. And then where there's another peak behind that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the joy of the journey is uh, leaning into what we're going to experience along the way. Like um, I had built up my training studio I'd owned it for three years and about a year into it, I brought in three teammates and I was delegating my clients, my ideal client to them as long as they were the right fit. And I was only training clients about 10 hours a week. And then one of them got hit by a car and I didn't have a contingency plan for that. So, okay, I had to step away from the ownership role and back down into head trainer role. And I wasn't mentally or emotionally prepared for that. And my business tanked. Uh, yeah, she, she's fine. Oh, she had a traumatic so. brain injury. Uh, she had about 28 stitches down the side of her face because she was a pedestrian, got hit by a car. Wow. And then uh, haven't spoken to her since because there was so much of a personality change that uh, one day the most coachable teammate I've ever had. And then after the un- unfortunate accident, it was just it was just not her path to continue to create a personal training business anymore because of, as you can probably empathize with, that we saw, or I heard her say, my purpose has changed. Yeah. And I, yeah. I was on board with like, okay, I wish you the best because of, if I keep you here, you're going to be more self-destructive and more um, the ups and downs. And you won't actually heal from this uh, traumatic experience that you had. So I'm mm-hmm. not going to hold you back let me know if I can help you in the future. Yeah, definitely. God, that's, it's it amazing hard, how some, something like that can just completely change your life in, right. a, in, a, in seconds. Yeah. Like I, yeah. in my business too, I lost 60,000 in revenue the next year because Whoa. of, because I was burning the candle at both ends, no longer the business owner. Now I was head trainer and CFO, CEO, head janitor, like just wearing too many hats in the business. So yeah, Working um, in the business, not on it. That's correct. And, yeah. and now because of shelter in place, uh, the story is that I am the business owner. I only have, um, how many sessions do I have? I have seven session hours a week with clients, whether that's Zoom or we go to the park. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the time I'm working on that online strategy to help scale my business. And for the last month, the last few months, we've seen 20%, 20%, 40% revenue growth through the online systems. Very nice. Because I'm working on the business, no longer (laughs) in the business. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, Kane, it was fantastic to bring you on and hear more about your story. Um, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, easiest way to get a hold of me is through Facebook on our Facebook page, the Skinny to Strong Podcast, uh, or through our website, uh, www.skinnytostrongpodcast.com. Uh, mm -hmm. That's the number two in it. Not right. Yeah, I'll be sure to put those links in the show notes below and cool. let me know how I can help you in the future. Uh, I'd love to collaborate again down the road. Um, I know you're in Australia, but Zoom makes it a makes the world a really small place. It does, uh, especially we're in lockdown here, so it's easy to get everything done via Zoom. <laughs> mm -hmm. We don't have another choice and the pivoting yeah. and the transitioning and the adaptability is either going to keep us in our dream career or it's going to chew us up and spit us out. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. And I appreciate your transparency and your vulnerability and sharing your story. And uh, let me know if there's anything I can do to help you, man. Will do. Uh, thank you for having me on, Dave. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure, man. <laughs>